His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. listening to his and hers horror my name is tia and i'm david i sound less froggy yes you do you sound fantastic thank you i have noticed that my laugh is different it is a little different but that's okay we'll get used to it hopefully it's not different forever how are things with you david i'm doing okay uh just in the past couple days i did a week or two's worth of work in uh, about eight hours sounds about right for you yeah it's my average but it's on a bigger stage so it's kind of weird yeah that's fair anyway how you doing? I coughed so hard at work that I blew out a blood vessel in my eye. Yeah. Which I have never done before. And I didn't even notice I had done it until I went to go to the bathroom. And I just kind of caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and stopped and was like, what the fuck is on my eye? I posted a picture on our Twitter. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Just glancing at it, it's like, oh, she's got the rage virus. Cool. It's not just a little bit. It's a, yeah, I think Liz was the one that's like, I've been playing too much Resident Evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I talked to my mom, because whenever I have medical shit, the first person I ask is always my mom. And I'm just like, hey, is this something I need to go to the optometrist for? Or will it just go away on its own? And she's like, no, I get those like once a month. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I get them like once a month. I'll sneeze really hard or cough really hard. And it's always the left eye. And that's where it is on me is my left eye. And I'm like, fuck, is this a thing I'm going to have to get used to now? Is this Is this another genetic weird thing that's just going to start happening Hmm. where once a month I'm going to cough and my eye is going to just go blood red? I mean, it's on brand. uh, Hear hear me out. If If you could time it like you knew you were due for one. And you got into an argument with someone and be like, no, you listen. And you cough and then turn back and look at them. Um, and your eye just blooms instantly. in red. Yeah. That would be like the uh, scene in Teen Wolf where he goes to buy beer and his eyes flash red. Yeah. But like way cooler. I don't I don't think it works. <laughs> I can dream, can't I? I know. Apparently it'll go away in like a week, so. Yeah. But before then, it'll change colors. Mm-hmm. So at some point, my eye might look black. Cool. Which, someone who has a thing about eye stuff. Don't look at your eyes. Wear sunglasses everywhere. It's, mm, Simple fix. Anyway. I'll make everything brighter for you, and we can both wear sunglasses. That's fair. Because it'll be too bright for me. It'll be an excuse to, to get those eyes. purple aviators that I've been looking at for two years. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, there was a smug smile. Shit. He's bought me stuff again, y'all. So please don't go buy them. Okay. Anyway, this week we are talking about another anthology film, Mm -hmm. the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah. Gosh, you and Dan Aykroyd. Look, if I'm going to be compared to anybody being compared to Dan Aykroyd, who is a very successful writer and also believes in paranormal shit like I do. And ghost blowjob enthusiast. Not a good... Apparently, there's precedent for it. We will talk about that, I'm sure, at some point. Okay. Anyway, I'm sure at some point we'll actually do an episode covering the Twilight Zone show. Mm. It's probably going to be a little bit, though. Yeah. Because I think we w- what we would have to do for that is we would have to pick episodes. Mm-hmm. But in that vein, I do have a couple episodes that I just want to briefly mention. Same. 
So there are three episodes from the original run of the series from back in the 60s that I would consider iconic in that even if you've never seen them, you you know them. Oh, yeah. The first being To Serve Man. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so classic. It's been nodded to and kind of turned into a, a gag I'm or sure, an Easter egg in so many other things. Yeah, I'm sure Simpsons Treehouse of Horror have mentioned it. Oh, yeah. I, it was mentioned in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at mm-hmm. one point. Again, it's part of the zeitgeist. Right. The next one I have is Eye of the Beholder. Mm-hmm. And then the last one I have that's iconic is one we've actually mentioned before, mm-hmm. and that is Living Doll with the uh, Talkie Tina. Yes, yes, yes. I believe we talked about that in uh-huh. our uh, Creepy Dolls episode. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Creepy Dolls. Creepy mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I also have uh, a couple episodes that are my favorites. Same. Do you want to go into your favorites first? How about we go back and forth? Okay. Because I know we probably have lined up on at least one of them. Probably. And that's going to be Time Enough at Last. Time Enough at Last, if you're not familiar, is the one where this guy, all he wants to do is read. It's Burgess Meredith, and all yeah. he wants to do is read, and nobody will fucking leave him alone, including his fucking wife, who defaces a library book. Which, uh, that's how you get library fines. Yeah. But the world ends, and he manages to survive being in a bank vault. Yeah, he went to, he decided he was going to take his lunch break in the bank vault of the bank that he worked at, so he took his book and a watch and his lunch and was you know, in the bank vault, and then some sort of nuclear or atomic blast happened, and everybody's dead except for him, because he was in the vault. And many had time enough to read. Time enough to read. And I don't want to spoil the twist if nobody, if you don't know it. Right. Because, of uh, course, all of them have a twist. Oh, yeah. Um, Even Oliver. You're such a dork, and I, I love you. Mm-hmm. And that is such a, that was such a niche little joke, I feel. Was it? I don't know. Okay. So what's one of your favorites? So one of the ones that I like, uh, I think it's from one of the later seasons of the original series, is called The Midnight Sun. Mm. And it's two women, uh, a young woman and an older woman. And the general setup is something has happened that has knocked Earth out of its normal orbit. Mm -hmm. And it's moving closer to the sun. So it's these two women dealing with that in this apartment building as the temperature just gets hotter and hotter. But of course, there's a twist. There is a twist. I mean, it's Twilight Zone. There's a twist with everything. Uh, the next one I want to mention is one that I'm going to say very little about because saying really anything about it is going to give a lot away. Mm-hmm. Because at first you're like, what's the point of this episode? Just watch Just watch it. And it's a stop at Willoughby. Yes. It's one of those ones where you go away from kind of thinking. Yeah. Uh, my next one is Black Leather Jackets. Mm-hmm. And... Let's just continue going back and forth, because I don't okay. really want to get too far sure. into these. Uh, my next one is The Silence, uh, where a man makes a wager, has to stay in this box for a year. And, and he can't talk. And he can't talk. And uh, drastic measures are taken. Yeah. Uh, my next one is uh, Number 12 Looks Just Like You, mm. which is about uh, the perils of unity and conformity. And Right. My last one I have is Dead Man's Shoes. That's a good one. Just shoes, wearing someone else's shoes can be dangerous. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say about it. My last one is The Masks, Mm. which is another one that's probably kind of iconic, um, 
where these four people are at their patriarch's home and he's dying and they have to wear these masks. Otherwise they get nothing. It's good. Yeah. We're not here to talk about all that. No, we should talk about them at one point. We should go watch, rewatch these and like go into depth. Sure. Because they're so good. Oh, yeah. The Twilight Zone in general was pretty innovative, honestly. Well, and it was one of the first areas, you know, in general, and I know we've said this before, but horror and science fiction both Mm -hmm. are kind of the leaders in talking about social concerns and social situations that... Topics that may be seen as taboo for general conversation. Right. Really, the only other place that you can insert something like that is comedy, but that can very easily skew into making a mockery of the situation being offensive yeah yeah comedy isn't necessarily known for delicately tackling subjects (laughs) generally not yeah yeah that just makes me think of ladybugs yeah (laughs) that was a movie that Mm. was made it was a movie that was made so let's talk about another movie that was made Mm -hmm. the twilight zone movie yes what we're here for So all the segments, except for the prologue, are either remakes or reworkings of previous Twilight Zone episodes. Mm -hmm. Scripts were written, like, several people had a hand in several, so I'm just going to mention those folks now. Okay. And I'll do other stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. So people who contributed to the screenplays, uh, John Landis, George Clayton Johnson, Richard Matheson, Melissa Matheson. And then Matheson is spelled two different ways, so they are, as far as I know, not related. Okay. Budget of $10 million, box office of $42 million. Okay. So as we normally do with anthology films, we're going to start with the prologue. There's no wraparound story, just because I feel like it doesn't need one because of the whole it being the Twilight Zone. Right. So the prologue, two men are on a road trip, and they are discussing their favorite episodes of the Twilight Zone, and then things get a little weird. Yeah. It was directed by John Landis. That tracks. Yeah. Stars Albert Brooks as the driver. He has been in quite a lot of stuff. Stuff people will know him from more recently. He was Bernie Rose in Drive. Mm -hmm. He's also the voice of Marlin in Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. Yeah. And then we have Dan Aykroyd as the passenger. He's he's been in, uh, what was that movie he was in? Oh, like most of my childhood. Yeah. Ghostbusters, Spies Like Us, uh, The Blues Brothers. Gross Point Blank. Yeah. He's been in a lot. He's Dan Aykroyd. So my thoughts on this segment. I love the song Midnight Special. Mm-hmm. CCR in general is just such a great band, I feel. Yeah. But I'm also one of those. I grew up listening to what my parents listened to. Mm-hmm. That didn't mean I didn't still listen to, you know, like. Hanson and NSYNC and stuff when I was in my teens, but classic rock is always like a comfort genre for me. Yeah. So I will still go back and listen to CCR and Rush and Styx and Aerosmith, all that stuff. See, my my musical upbringing similarly was of a earlier generation, obviously, Mm -hmm. because future music isn't really a thing. No. Uh, But mine was mostly Beach Boys, Steve Miller Band, Mm -hmm. The Eagles, yeah, those are in there, too, for me. A little bit of CCR. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's from my dad's side. From my mom's side, it was mostly Tracy Chapman, the Cry Freedom soundtrack. Oh. Uh, metaphysical Weird. mantra stuff. Yeah, so it's it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, I, I, that, I, that tracks. Uh, <laughs> I do love that when the, when the tape breaks and then he's like, oh, the radio doesn't work. Mm-hmm. 
I like that they start playing this TV theme song game. Oh, yeah. And I was like, we should play that next time we're oh, on a totally. road trip. I was like, that would be so fun. Shit, we should play that next time we go to the store. Like, next time we go grocery shopping? Yeah, why not? Like, while we're in the store. That's fair. Sure, why not? I mean, it's um, better than what they're piping in. Yeah. We already mentioned the episode that they're talking about in that segment is the Time Enough at Last. Right. But speaking of Burgess Meredith, he's actually doing the voiceover for the film. Yes. He, he takes the Rod Sterling role. Yes. So, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. All right, so let's talk about the first full segment. Oh, yeah. It's... It's difficult for me. Well, and we'll get into that. There is some controversy in regards to the filming of this particular segment. Uh, we'll talk about that towards the end of the episode, um, just because it's really sad. <laughs> so, well, I was going to talk about what's actually in the episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll get to that, too. Okay. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the first segment is called Time Out. Mm-hmm. A racist businessman receives a tough lesson in tolerance. It is a reworking of a December 1961 episode called Equality of Mercy. Mm-hmm. Vic Morrow plays Bill Connor. He was Sergeant Saunders on Combat, yeah. which was a TV show back in the day, I guess. I never watched it, but I didn't know if you did. I know you occasionally watch old shows. No, I, I never watched that one. Okay. Doug McGrath is his friend Larry. He was Sergeant Nash in Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. Charles Hallahan is Ray. He's Norris in The Thing. And then the other person I want to mention is uh, Stephen Williams is the bar patron who kind of confronts them and is like, can you shut the fuck up? Yeah. He was Rufus Turner on Supernatural. Awesome. Yeah. One of the, the other older hunters. Yeah. Who would occasionally work with Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. So I do have a brief summary for these and we can kind of put our thoughts in as as, as we go. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Bill and his friends, Larry and Ray, are at this bar and Bill is a piece of shit. Yeah. Walks in as a sourpuss. Yeah. He got passed over for a job, or for a promotion at his job. Mm-hmm. And even though the person who got the promotion has been there longer than him, he still thinks he should have gotten it. He was like, that was my promotion. I should have gotten that. But just some of the most offensive shit comes out of his fucking mouth. Yeah. And honestly, like, one of his friends isn't much better because his friend Larry calls to the waitress and he goes, hey, girl, to get the waitress's attention. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fucking rude. And then she comes over to bring them a beer and Bill goes, why don't you come over here and make me feel better? And I'm like, okay, dude, she's a waitress. She is not a sex worker. And even if she was a sex worker, I don't think that's how you ask. (laughs) No. That's not how you solicit the services of a sex worker. And you also don't just pull a random woman into your fucking lap. Yeah, that's gross. That's fucking gross. Don't do that shit. And I love when she just like looks at him, daggers in her eyes and goes, don't touch me and gets up. Yeah. But then immediately his he's like, what is this country coming to? It's like they want to be treated like people. Sorry, I guess. Like, if you want to feel better, go home to your wife. Or is she sick of your poor me bullshit, too? Yeah. And he just starts using all these racial, like, well, not just racial slurs, but just slurs in general. Because his whole thing that he thinks the reason this other person got the promotion instead of him is because they're Jewish. And there's some sort of uh, Jewish people want all the money, so they stick together stereotype that he believes. Yeah. Like, but he uses, you know... All of the really bad slurs that you don't use for black people, Vietnamese people, Japanese people. 
pretty much any, pretty much everybody. everything in the book. Um, yeah, and and there's a there's a table of black guys sitting right by them, and one of them very nicely gets up and is like, "I don't care what you think, I just don't want to hear it." Yeah, you can think whatever racist bullshit you want, just don't say it in my presence. And one of his friends is like, oh, I'm sorry. My friend's a little upset. He got some bad news. And I'm like, no, your friend is a bigoted piece of shit. And it is your job as a fellow white man or a fellow white person to tell them that what they're saying is not okay and to check their shit. Well, I guess I don't need my rant now. So, no, go for it. Oh, well, all I was going to say was that William Connor. This character, uh-huh. full of hate, racist, misogynist, the whole the whole nine yards. It's hard to watch. Mm-hmm. That said, I, I see folks like that sad bastard all the time. He reminded me of certain relatives that I no longer associate with, unfortunately. Now, not everybody that's like him is as overt. Um, I've heard things like saying the quiet part loudly. This guy is saying everything loudly. Yeah. And saying the quiet part loudly really doesn't make anything better. Mm-mm. You know, it's kind of like when someone says, oh, I've never said that in public. Well, when once you put in public, it's still you. Yeah. But my rant's actually about his friends. And their complicity? They're complicit in enabling the thing that their friend is doing. So they have two options. They need to either call him out on his shit mm-hmm. or leave him. Yeah. Well, because his friend Larry's like, oh, he's on a tear tonight. It's like, dude, it's not funny. Like, that's not, it's not okay at all. And frankly, everybody in this world, you know, if, if you have love or respect for fellow human beings or even yourself, then you shut that shit down. Mm-hmm. That's that's just what should be done. Yeah. Um, if they don't listen and learn, then they don't need to be in your life. Yeah. Because you, and all of you out there, really, you know, you're worthy of love and respect for who you are. Fuck the William Connors out there. They yeah. Can, they can all have each other. Yeah. But there's no reason not to shut that shit down. Right, exactly. So because his friends, mostly Ray, is being is trying to be like, dude, you need to calm down. Well, and, and even his reasoning's a bit racist. He's like, you trying to get us killed? Yeah. Which, honestly, let him get his ass kicked. It would serve him right. Yeah, he wouldn't learn anything from it. And I don't feel like he learned anything in the movie. Well, I don't know. Because we'll talk about that later. Okay. So he exits the bar because he's been talking shit and generally ruining everyone's night. And blaming everybody else for his problems. Mm-hmm. But when he exits the bar, he is suddenly in Nazi-occupied France. Yeah. And the SS officers try to question him, but he doesn't speak German or French. And when he starts speaking English, they is- I think they assume he's like an American soldier or something. Well, well, first they were asking if he was from England. And- yeah, they were asking if he was English. But then they could tell by his accent there. And they said something, they said American, something that sounded like American. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they're just trying to figure out where the hell he's from and they're looking for his papers and, and, you know, they didn't know what his MasterCard was and they didn't know what a driver's license was because again, you're not in power here, sir. Yeah. But a chase ensues. He gets shot in the arm Uh and he ends up falling off of this ledge. But when he lands... He's suddenly in rural Alabama in the 1950s, surrounded by Klansmen. And John Larroquette, for some reason. Well, John Larroquette plays one of the Klansmen. Fair. And they all see him as a black man Mm -hmm. and try to hang him. Yeah. 
And he ends up getting away from them as well, jumps into a lake, dives in, and when he surfaces, suddenly he's in a river in Vietnam. Yeah. Where he starts being fired on by American GIs because they see him as Vietnamese. Yeah. So one of the GIs throws a grenade, which somehow blows him back into Nazi-occupied France. Yeah, because that's how grenades work. Well, this it's a whole thing. Right. Where they see him as a Jewish man Mm -hmm. and load him onto a freight car bound for a concentration camp. And through the slats of the car, he sees his friends leaving the bar and he screams for help, but they can't hear him. And the train car pulls away and that's the end of the segment. Yeah. I do have one question about the segment. Mm -hmm. So the American GIs in Vietnam, would they really have been blasting Purple Haze while making their way through the jungle, or... I don't know, I wasn't there. No, I'm just saying, from a military standpoint, if you're making your way through what is realistically enemy territory, you're probably not going to have your radio blasting Jimi Hendrix. No, no. I, I feel like it was non-diegetic music used as diegetic music. Yeah. Because... To, it, to confirm, yes, these are American soldiers, because, see, they're listening to Jimi Hendrix. And they are marking the time the period. The time period, yeah. With it being Purple Haze. But, but yeah, no. Uh, ground troops on the ground, surrounded by jungle cover, probably would not be wanting to alert everyone within, I don't know, anybody in earshot that, hey, there's some people over here. Yeah. That's, that's kind of silly. Well, because when Bill was hiding in the river, he watched a group of Viet Cong go by. <laughs> yeah. So they're not that far. No, but yeah, as far as your question on tactics, no, that's not that something not you would... not good tactics. <laughs> not if you're a, a small ground unit surrounded by a potential ambush at every angle. Yeah. Now, if you're an air unit or a sea unit and you want to blast that stuff mm-hmm. to strike fear into the enemy, so to speak, sure, give yeah. it a shot. But okay. it's not the same with a small ground force. Yeah. They're squishy. Yeah. Did you have any additional thoughts about this mm. that don't involve the controversy, which we will discuss later? Fuck Bill. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he learned anything. Because even at the very end, he's he's still all woe is me and not realizing this is the shit I was doing. I don't feel like he learned a goddamn thing, and I don't think he ever will. Well, and when he was with the, the, gr- the group of Klansmen and trying to convince them that he was white, I'm watching this and I'm like, dude, let's be perfectly honest. You're not much better than they are. They think the same kind of shit that you think. You're just pissed because you're on the receiving end now. Yeah. I feel like there's a reason that there's the, you feel the way you do about this particular segment that ties into it was supposed to be more fleshed out and it wasn't for a reason. Well, no, I just I just feel like this really, I mean, it it's a good thought piece, but I don't think it's a decent story. Okay. That's a shame because it's, it's actually one of my favorite segments. Again, it's a great thought piece. I don't feel like it tells a full story other than, well, there he goes. Good. I shouldn't look at a protagonist of something and say good riddance. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that later. Right. Okay. Anyway, let's move on to the next story. Uh, Kick the Can. Yeah, stay tuned for further thoughts. Right. So Kick the Can is a remake of a February 1962 episode. Mm-hmm. The elderly residents of a retirement home basically get a chance to relive their youth. Yeah temporarily so scatman carruthers mm-hmm. is mr bloom most horror fans will remember him as dick halloran in the shining he was also turkle in one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah bill quinn is leo conroy he was sam in the birds 
Martin Garner is Mr. Weinstein. He was Bernie on Night Court. Mm-hmm. And then Selma Diamond was Mrs. Weinstein. She was Selma on Night Court. Yeah. Which I never watched, but... Which John Larroquette was also on Night Court. Yes, he was. They borrowed a lot from Night Court. Mm-hmm. Helen Shaw is Mrs. Dempsey. She mm. was the grandmother in Parenthood. Yes. She she was wonderful. Yeah. Murray Matheson is Mr. A.G. He was Felix Mulholland on Manicot. Mm-hmm. Peter Bracco is Mr. Mute. He was Ramon in Spartacus. Okay. And then Priscilla Pointer is Miss Cox. She's Dr. Sims in Dream Warriors. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that tracks. I thought she looked familiar. Yeah. So we get introduced to the residents or some of the residents at this rest home called Sunnyvale. And Mr. Bloom is the newest resident. And they're all kind of reminiscing about the games that they played as children. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very sweet. It's a very, it's a very sweet scene, I think. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Bloom believes that you are never too old to have fun. Like, it's not, it, it's a, it's a state of mind, basically. Mr. Conroy, however, basically feels like, well, we're old, we shouldn't be doing that shit anymore, because we're old and we'll probably get hurt. Yeah. You shouldn't dance. Look at, I mean, your hip. You're gonna break your hip. Yeah. You know? I kind of hate Mr. Conroy's family, because they do this shit to him every two weeks, where they say they're gonna let him uh, come and visit them for the week, and then they always tell him, oh, it's not good for us, we can't. Mm-hmm. And it really bothers me because I feel like a lot of it is the wife. Mm. And she says, oh, we have to go. We're going to be late for the game. Because my assumption is that the grandkid has some sort of baseball or football game or something that he has to get ready for. Which, just take Mr. Conroy with you. I'm sure he would love to watch his grandson play sports. Whatever fucking sport you've decided your kid needs to play. Sport ball. Yeah. Mr. Conroy in general is kind of grouchy, and I feel like part of that is because of the shit with his family. Yeah. I never, I don't understand what's so wrong with reminiscing about your youth and the games you used to play. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, as long as they're good memories, like, just let them have their memories, Leo. Jesus. Yeah. Fuck. I thought the old folks were delightful. They were. I love Mr. Bloom says this one quote that I wrote down. I thought, I think you did too. Yes, I did. The day we stop playing is the day we start getting old. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love that. So that night, Mr. Bloom convinces all the residents, except for Mr. Conroy, to come outside and play a game of kick the can with him. And somehow during this game, they are magically transformed into their child selves. Yes. And they spend a few hours playing, but then they start thinking about the practicalities of being young again. Like, where are we going to live? Uh, Our families won't recognize us. The person that I loved, that I was married to for a very long time, they're already gone. I'm not going to meet them again because they're already gone. So all the residents realize that they don't necessarily have to remain young physically, they can remain young in their hearts and in their minds mm-hmm. and go back to their correct ages, right. basically. So they all go upstairs and they wake up Mr. Conroy, who freaks out. He's like, there's kids in the beds. Hey, he goes to get Ms. Cox and he's like, there's, there's children in here. Well, and when she comes in, they've all reverted back to their normal ages, except Mr. A.G. Who's like who, hiding under a blanket. He's hiding under a blanket and he has opted to remain young. Yeah. 
And when... he's just a randy little beast. Well, and when Leo sees this, he's like, take me with you. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Agee's like, I, I can't. It's too late. You had your chance, and I have to go, and you have to stay. So the following morning, we get to see all the residents, and they're all, like, happily going about new activities. The Weinsteins and Mrs. Dempsey are all going to go on, like, a picnic. Mm-hmm. I love when they... Okay, I love the bit when they all revert back to children, and Mrs. Dempsey's cat turns into a kitten. Yes. Oh, my fucking God. Because that, to me says that on some level the cat understands <laughs> and is like shit i want to be a baby cat again for a little bit <laughs> i don't know it's just so cute and then we see mr bloom leaving and going to another retirement community which i mean i know it's a stylistic choice in the way it was shot but it's like do they seriously have a retirement community just a block over well i and i don't even know if it necessarily is just a block over or if that's just the way that the, the transition works is this florida I don't, maybe. (laughs) Who knows? I think this is a really great segment, Mm -hmm. but I agree with what some people have said in the past. Tonally, it doesn't really fit with the rest of the film. Then again, that's kind of how the the show was back in the day. Not every episode of the original Twilight Zone was scary. Right. Sometimes it, I, I feel Twilight Zone really was more designed to make you think than make you scared. Right. And sometimes, sometimes it was a little horror- Sometimes it was a little sci-fi. Sometimes it was just like a sweet little magical episode, which is what this is. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite parts of this movie. Yeah. Because Mr. Bloom, every time I get up and my bones creak or my, my knee locks up or something, Yeah. now I can just think about things that Mr. Bloom said and go, you know what? Maybe some exercise could keep me from yeah. my bones creaking. I mean, Maybe. and it's clearly totally very Spielberg. Oh, yeah. Like, this is clear. Like, if you didn't know that this was Spielberg's segment, you would think, oh, this uh, this seems like his kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Are we ready to move on to the yeah, third segment? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's look at my life. No, seriously, my first note I made about, ab- about this next part was this kid reminds me of me. That's fair. So the next segment is called It's a Good Life. Mm, yes. It is a remake. I would honestly call, call this less a remake and more of a reworking of the original. It's a good life episode. Because mm-hmm. if you've seen the, have you seen the original episode? I'm pretty sure I have. It does not end positively. <laughs> no. Well, you could say this. This one ends either positively or indifferently. I think this ends. I would call say that this ends positively, just because at the end of the original episode, everyone is still imprisoned. Oh, fair, fair, fair. Yeah. I like the way it opens. Yeah. So this segment was directed by Joe Dante. Okay. Cast, we have Kathleen Quinlan as Helen Foley. Mm-hmm. We have previously mentioned her. She was Peters in Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Licht is Anthony. He was Mark Hogan on some show called Valerie back oh, yeah. in the day. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Kevin McCarthy is Uncle Walt. He was Miles Bennell in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. He also has a cameo in the 78 remake nice. of Body Snatchers. Patricia Berry is the mom She's just called Mother. Mm-hmm. She was Sally on Guiding Light. Oh, yeah. William Schaller is Father. He was Mayor Schubert in In the Heat of the Night. Oh, yeah. Nancy Cartwright is Ethel. She is the voice of Bart Simpson. Yes, she is. And then we have Dick Miller as Walter Paisley. Mm, good old Dick. And Sherry Curry as Sarah. Yes. 
So we meet Helen Foley, who is leaving her old town, her old life. We're not exactly sure why. She's on her way to uh, Willoughby, which is a nod to the old series. Right. And she stops at this diner because she thinks she's lost and she meets this kid, Anthony. So after defending him from some locals and then accidentally hitting him while he's on his bike with her car, she agrees to give him a ride home. Yeah. I don't think it was an accident. No, I don't. I, I think he made that happen. So at his house, Anthony's family is extremely welcoming. It's like to an insanely creepy degree. It kind of reminded me of if you're watching something with like a with uh, cult members mm-hmm. when they are welcoming someone that they're trying to recruit. My first warning sign. Mm-hmm. There were three disused cars outside his home. Yeah. Like hoods up, parts scrapped. Clearly very dusty and dirty. And I'm like, three disused cars, one home, kind of isolated. I don't see a working car. I don't think she noticed. Danger zone. Yeah. You're not you're not going into a safe space, madam. Yeah. Well, and it gets weirder when Anthony goes to show her where the bathroom is, and his family is extremely eager to take Helen's things. Mm-hmm. And the minute she's out of sight, they start rifling through her purse and in the pockets of her sweater. Oh, yeah. Stealing cigarettes. Stealing cigarettes, looking at photos. Ah, I miss the beach. I miss the beach. So Helen comes to a room where there's a woman with her back facing Helen. She tries Mm -hmm. to say hello, doesn't get a response. And Anthony's like, oh, that's my other sister, Sarah. She was in an accident. And Helen just kind of leaves it at that, doesn't ask any other questions. And the camera pans and we see that Sarah doesn't have a mouth. Nope, no mouth. In a, the area where her mouth should be is just smooth flesh. Yeah. Very creepy. Kind of like No Face from Dick Tracy. Sure. Still haven't watched Dick Tracy. I'm going to put in Dick Tracy Easter eggs in every episode there, until you watch until, it. No. Please don't. <laughs> okay. So it's dinner time. They have basically kidnapped Helen to stay for dinner because she was like, oh, no, it's fine. I don't want to intrude. And because it's what Anthony wants, it's what the family wants, because that's how this whole shit works. Well, and he says it's his birthday. Yeah. Which... He told Helen earlier it was his birthday. So dinner... Yeah. (laughs) ...is ice cream, candy apples, cookies, potato chips, and hamburgers with peanut butter? Yeah. And... It just doesn't go down any other way. It just doesn't... Peanut butter makes it better. (laughs) It's so good with the peanut butter. actually, there are some burger places that have made a peanut butter sauce. Yeah, but not... It doesn't look the way... No. This looks... This is unappealing. It looks like feces. Let's be perfectly honest. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, Helen thinks this is weird, and she's questioning it. It's like, well, you're a growing child. You need your nutrition. And the situation gets very tense, because of course it does. And then she's like, oh, it's probably a treat for your birthday. And Ethel's like, another Another. birthday? Really? (laughs) Things just keep getting weirder and weirder. There's a television in every room. They're all playing cartoons. He asks Uncle Walt to do a magic trick and a top hat magically appears. It's just all very he strange. He a bunny out of it? Yeah. <laughs> and then, an, and then an, an even more terrifying bunny. Oh, yeah. So eventually it is revealed that these people are not Anthony's real family. No. His real family... They say that he killed them, but I I don't know necessarily if he actually killed them 
or if he did something and they died because there's a difference or if he did something and they're just no longer present in this world right so the people that are there currently are people he kidnapped to be his family after his real family was no longer an option yeah surrogates yeah and now he's trying to do the same thing to helen Mm -hmm. and because he's a child Anthony does not understand why everybody's afraid of him and why they're unhappy because he's like, you have this nice house to live in. You don't have to do anything. I do everything for you. You know, you get to eat this great food every day. Like I give you everything you could need. So why aren't you happy? And he eventually makes the house and everyone except himself and Helen disappear. Yeah. Sends his quote, quote, family. He says where they wanted to go. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's back back to their homes or, or back where they came from. I'm not sure. Well, he also sent his uh, surrogate sister uh, to Cartoon Hell, which was... And then she was eaten by a dinosaur. Yeah. Which she could be fine. We don't know. I mean, anything can happen in a cartoon. Yeah, exactly. So Helen offers to teach Anthony how to better use his abilities. Yeah. And he makes them be appear back at her car and they drive off and it's a very happy ending. Yeah. It's kind of sweet because at the same time you see, because he makes Helen promise that she'll never leave him, it's another form of imprisonment essentially. But hopefully in her teaching of him, he'll be better able to control his impulses. Yeah. It could be mutually beneficial. I I like to think of it as, as sweet, but sinister. Yeah. Because what's her angle? I mean, all we're introduced to her as is, you know, meet Helen, age 27, school teacher. Yeah, she's a school teacher. She left her old life. We don't know why. So could this be actually her doing a power grab? We don't know. We yeah. don't know any of these things. We just know that for now, it's a somewhat happy ending. Yeah. Do you have any thought? I don't really have a whole lot of thoughts about this segment. Do you? The first half of the segment, I really related to Anthony. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. Seem legit. And I love to see Dick Miller. Yeah. Uh, there was a blonde guy in the diner who looked familiar. No idea who he was. Yeah. Last thing I wrote about this was that rabbit, though. Cartoon hell. Cool. Helen was smart. Because the, there are these terrifying puppet things. Yeah. Um, oh, God. Yeah, it's it's something. Yeah. Uh, um, from a child's mind. Yeah. So let's move on to the last segment. Um, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Yeah. This is a remake of a 1963 episode. Yes, that starred William Shatner. Yes, and actually, I'm gonna, I'm, we're gonna get into that. Okay. Or I have thoughts about that. Okay. John Lithgow plays John Valentine. He was recently played Roger Ailes in Bombshell, mm-hmm. which, if you haven't seen, it's a really good movie. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Although it will piss you off if you're anything like me. But he also played Winston Churchill on The Crown. He was the bad guy in Cliffhanger. And he was in Third Rock from the Sun. He's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Abby Lane is the senior flight attendant. Donna Dixon is the junior flight attendant, the blonde. Mm -hmm. John Dennis Johnston is the co-pilot. He was Frank Stilwell in Wyatt Earp. Yes. Larry Cedar plays the gremlin. He was Leon on Deadwood. Okay. And then we have Charles Knapp as the Sky Marshal and Dan Aykroyd as an EMT. Yeah. So John Valentine... (laughs) He is, I say businessman, because I I wrote that before I did my rewatch. He's not a businessman. He writes textbooks about computer stuff. Yeah. 
And he has this insane fear of flying, like triggers these really intense panic attacks, which I feel like if flying freaks you out that much, don't fly. Maybe you don't fly. Maybe cars are your thing. You need to go transatlantic, take a boat. Yeah, seriously. Relax. Enjoy your time. Although cruise lines are probably not a good idea right now. Yeah. No, 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 no. But in the mid 80s, totally. Yeah. So when we're introduced to him, he's in this airplane bathroom. Yeah. Having one of these insane panic attacks. Mm -hmm. I say insane. That's rude. It's very, it's a very intense panic attack. Yes. Intense panic attack. I don't think I've had panic attacks. I don't think I've ever had one that bad like that. Or at least if I have, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, It's been a while for me. Yeah. They, the flight attendants do eventually get him back to his seat and they offer to give him a sedative and he says no, which I would be like, give me that shit. <laughs> I thought that w- that part was actually rather sweet because the flight, the senior flight attendant, she was like, you know, I'm really not supposed to do this, but I have some mild sedatives. I think it might ease the situation. You know, you're, you're, you're welcome to. Yeah. To have some. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> nope. Give me that shit. Yeah. No, hook it up. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if I'm like this. Yeah. Just give it to me. I will also say real quick. When I'm having a panic attack, the last thing I want near me is a bratty child with a Polaroid camera. No shit. Oh Half my god, my that little her. girl. She's awful. Um, She's got a fucking ventriloquist dummy. No smoking. And oh, as like shut the fuck up. Yes, of course. This was also back when you could have bratty children smoking and uh, things like that on planes. Now you can only have bratty children. Yeah. I love when her mother wakes up. She's like, oh, God, what has she done now? And I'm like, you know, your child is a problem. Did she get like taken by some random stranger during that scene? One of the flight attendants picked her up and and took her away because she was being a pain in the ass and getting in the way. Mm. So, yeah, back in his seat, trying to ignore this fucking child because he was just trying to have a cigarette to calm his nerves. And the captain had turned on the no smoking light because there's a storm going on outside. It's pretty intense. Yes. But he sees a gremlin on the wing of the plane and it kind of somehow channels the lightning to strike one of the engines, causing a flame out. And of course, he tries to warn the flight attendants, the other passengers, the sky marshal, the co-pilot. But of course, because he's been having these panic attacks, everybody just assumes that this is part of that and doesn't believe him. Right. So eventually he is able to get the Sky Marshal's gun. Yeah. And shoots out a window and tries to shoot the gremlin. And immediately the gremlin is like, bitch. And (laughs) like runs up to him, which that was fucking terrifying. The speed at which that thing. Oh, yeah. And like bites the gun in half and grabs his face. Does a little nah. Does a little like, uh, 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 I know what you're trying to pull. And then realizes the plane is landing and is like, you motherfucker, you ruined my fun. And then leaves. Before that, though, I want to point something out. Yes. And that is the first officer and the person calling the co-pilot. But he identifies himself as first officer, which is basically the same thing. Right. I feel like the way his lines were written for it being in the 80s before we had a lot more focus on mental health and things like that. I feel like his character actually really handled the situation very well. Yeah. Um, because you've got someone who is very frantic, who is very insistent on what they believe they saw. Yeah. And he handles it both rationally, but also compassionately. And I, I, I found that actually rather endearing for something that was shot back in the mid-80s. Yeah. 
There is a point after Valentine has seen the gremlin where he's the flight attendants have shut the windows. They've gotten him a blanket. They're like, just try and get some sleep. Nothing's going to happen. Everything's fine. And he's kind of rolled over, but he's like, he's it's, he senses something is there. Mm -hmm. And when he opens that window and the gremlin's face is just right by the window, that freaked the shit out of me when I first saw it. Here's the thing about that. Because I have like issues with dry eyes, I have, I have a sleep mask that I'm supposed to wear, but I, I occasionally will get this thing where I'll get in my own head and I'll have my sleep mask on and I'll be convinced that there's something right next to me <laughs> like this, uh-huh. where because I can't just open my eyes and check, I have to like go through the whole process of removing my sleep mask and everything. It just happens occasionally where I can't wear it because I'm convinced there's something right there. The lights out short film made that so much worse. (laughs) So the plane lands, everyone assumes Valentine had some sort of breakdown and is just crazy. Mm -hmm. But then the maintenance crew shows up and there are huge claw marks. And like chunks taken out of the Yeah. And the guy's like, what the fuck happened up there? Because this is not just the pl- the engine got struck by a lightning and there was a flame out. Like, the- clearly something was fucking with the plane. Yeah. And Valentine is taken away in an ambulance, which is driven by the passenger from the prologue. Who says, hey, had some scares up there. Want to see something really scary? And pops in a tape playing Midnight Special. Yes. I fucking love that so song. So it's not a wraparound, really, but it's a wraparound song. It's Yeah. It's such a good song. Fuck, I love that song. That gremlin is terrifying as shit, though. Way more so than the one from the... Okay, have you seen the original episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet? Yeah, of course. It's classic. Then, oh oh my god, the gremlin from that one is so not scary looking at all. I thought the one in this one was kind of cute. This one scared me, especially when the the eyes got big. Mm. That was really freaky for me. But because in the original one, it looks like a guy in a retooled, like, ape suit. Mm, yeah yeah i do have to ask who played it better john lithgow or william shatner here's the thing yeah shatner's gonna shatner there's something on the wing so i'm gonna say lithgow for me actually brought across more of a tense panic what's real what's not am i imagining this I can feel him questioning his own sanity because he didn't seem like he was an unhinged person. No, just he in plays an unhinged that very, situation. Yeah, right. he plays that part very well because it's similar. If you've ever seen Buckaroo Banzai, mm-hmm. it's similar to that. Yeah. And then again, Shatner's going to Shatner. It's just like Sean Connery's going to Sean Connery. You know, I'm not Spanish. I'm Egyptian. You sound like a Scotchman. Well, you sound Scottish, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. I'm really, yeah, Sean Connery did not even try accents. That was his thing. He didn't even try to hide which, his own accent. Which was great for, for Connery, but, you know, there's there's some things that you have to... Actually, no, you do you. I'm not going to say you have to do anything. And if you like the original, that's totally fine. I'm not judging any of that. I just think, for me, yeah. John Lithgow actually brought greater tension. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I, when, when I watched the original Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, all I could think of was... This isn't the Enterprise. Yeah, bones. Now, like he, every time he was looking around wildly, I was, I felt like he was looking for one of like Spock or McCoy, <laughs> which I believe this was actually before he did Star Trek. But oh, she's checking. 
66, so yeah. 66, yeah, so... It's just, I got so used to... Yeah, it was three years prior, so... So basically, he was doing great in this, he just didn't do anything different in Star Trek. I don't know. (laughs) I... I don't know. I mean, William Shatner's fine. It's just my first exposure to Shatner was with the original Star Trek series. And I didn't feel like he was doing anything different. That's fair. I was waiting for him to, like, make out with a blue flight attendant, you know? Yeah. Get his shirt off for no reason. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I also, in, in watching this, I renamed all the segments. Well, all but one. Okay. So I've got opening, road trip fright. Okay. The awful man. Okay. Young Again. Portrait of a Woman in Transit. <laughs> because that is what that segment opens with. Because yeah, he, that's because what he says. Because the opening line is, Portrait of a Woman in Transit. Helen Foley, 27, school teacher. Right. And then it rolls into it. And that caught my attention. I'm like, that's a title. And then Airplane Hell. Fair. Because no one was sleeping to have a nightmare. It, it, was, it, was, it was a waking hell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there is some controversy associated with this film. Yes. And I, I want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I want to make it clear that I am in no way glorifying this accident, what happened. But I feel like it would be a disservice to the cast and crew that was affected, particularly those who lost their lives, mm-hmm. to talk about this film and not talk about what happened. Right. To me, it would be like pretending it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And that would be an insult to the people who were hurt by this tragedy. Yeah. Because it was a tragedy. It it should not have happened. No. No, it should not have. So this is regarding uh, the first segment, Time Out. The segment ends rather abruptly. Mm-hmm. Bill was meant to have more of a redemptive moment. Well, not in the original script, actually. So at some point... There were a couple of studio executives at Warner Brothers who were talking to John Landis and said that they didn't feel Bill was a very relatable character at all. And they wanted him to have some sort of redemptive moment. Okay. So they added in this section because he actually gets blown around in time more in what was what was intended. What more than what was in, more than what happened. Yeah, it was right. it was intended for him to go bouncing around several times. So there was this one instance where he rescues two orphaned Vietnamese children from a group of American soldiers who were in a helicopter. So the scene was meant to be shot at night at Indian Dunes, which is a ranch in Santa Clarita, California. It's actually been used as a sort of jungly setting for a lot of things just Mm -hmm. because... It's very, it's, it's huge. It's very open. There's a river nearby that has a lot of vegetation that kind of looks jungly. Yeah. So Vic Morrow, who played Bill, was carrying the two child actors, uh, Renee Shinyi Chen, who was six, mm-hmm. and Micah Din Lee, who was seven, out of this abandoned village across the shallow river. So he's like up to his knees in water with a kid on each hip as far as i'm assuming because no footage has ever been released of this right which no footage ever should i hope it was destroyed yeah so i'm assuming he's got like a kid on each hip just because as someone who has been around small children that's the most efficient way to carry most efficient way to carry them yeah so the helicopter was being piloted by uh, a vietnam veteran named dorsey wingo Mm -hmm. and for this scene he was hovering 25 feet from the ground 
near a really large mortar effect. And he was turning 180 degrees to the left for the next shot. And there's some discussion about what exactly happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people say the effect was mistimed and he was in the wrong place, wasn't where he was supposed to be. No one's exactly sure 100%. But when the mortar effect went off, the helicopter's tail rotor was still above it. Mm. And because this was a, a mortar effect with debris involved, because it was meant to look like stuff was striking the ground, some of this hit the tail rotor, causing it to fail and detach and causing the helicopter to spin out of control. Yeah. At the same time, Moro, who is running, drops Renee into the water and he was reaching out to pick her back up not paying attention to where the helicopter was, which that's not really part of his job. Right, because as far as he knows, the mortar effect went off, the helicopter's there, everything's normal. He's focusing on doing his job, which is acting. Right. So he was reaching out to grab Renee from the water when the helicopter fell on top of the three of them. Yeah. Vic and Micah were decapitated by the helicopter's main rotor blades. And Renee was crushed by the right landing skid. They all died instantly. It should not have happened. No. Wait a minute. Okay. So in the aftermath of this, uh, an investigation was conducted by the National Transportation Safety Board. And they determined... The probable cause of the accident was, and I quote, the detonation of debris-laden high-temp special effect explosions too near a low-flying helicopter, which led to foreign object damage to one rotor blade and delamination due to heat to the other rotor blade, separation of the tail rotor assembly, and uncontrollable descent of the helicopter. So I think most of us know what most of those words mean, but delamination is something I was not familiar with. Um, Do you want to tell us what delamination means? Yes, let me put on my lab coat. Okay. (laughs) Hello, class. So delamination, when heat is applied at this intensity to a helicopter's rotor blade, it causes separation of the segments because it's not one solid piece. It's several layers of, of objects and mechanisms and things. Right. So when the heat's applied, think of it as you have a library card and you have it laminated. When it's when the lamination starts to peel apart, now it now it kind of jams up when you try to put it back in that slot in your wallet or something like that. That's delamination that's taken place. That's due to wear and tear. But this is heat, so it's rapid delamination. Yeah. So you've got something that is streamlined aerodynamic for lift for an aircraft now is peeling, which is not streamlined anymore. Right. It's essentially being warped by the heat. And that's not ideal for lift or control or stability or balance. It's more like one of those things you, you zip a, you pull a little ripcord and it, it flies, but then it hits the corner of the ceiling and just kind of banks around in places. Yeah. Think of that without walls. It has no control. Right. And is inefficient. Yeah. And... Ironically, the Federal Aviation Administration had, in in March of the year that the, the movie was being shot, instituted new regulations for how aircraft were meant to be used and regulated 
in regards to filming for television and films. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, these regulations only applied to fixed wing aircraft. They hadn't considered rotary wing wing aircraft like helicopters. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, the the cause of loss of life here was negligence. Yeah. Renee and Micah were hired illegally. Mm-hmm. The production, for some reason, they essentially violated, not, not essentially, they did. They violated California child labor laws by hiring children for a film shoot without obtaining the necessary permits. Right. No one knows exactly why they did this. It's speculated that they didn't think they'd be granted permission to have the children there because part of California's child labor laws when it comes to film and television sets is children of this age, you know, six and seven, can't be at very late night shoots, which this was, Mm -hmm. and can't be involved in scenes that have excessive amounts of explosions, which this did. Right. I mean, that's not great for their ears, their eyes, their personal safety. Yeah. All sorts of concerns. Yeah. Allegedly, the associate producer, George Folsey Jr., told the kids' parents not to tell any of the firefighters on the set that the children were going to be part of this scene Mm -hmm. and actually actively hid the children from safety officers who also worked as welfare workers for the cast and crew when it comes to the fire and explosions. Oh, yeah, it's double duty. You want to make sure, one, are you good? Uh And two, is it safe? Yeah. Because if you're not good, but this is safe, that could still be tragedy. Yeah. Well, and if this isn't safe and you're good, that could be tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. You, You want everything to line up. And by hiding by hiring these kids under the table and hiding them, the other thing that they weren't required to have on set was a child safety advocate, Mm. which you're required to have child safety advocates or social workers. If you have children on set, you're also required to have a teacher. Yeah. And because they ostensibly lied, they didn't have to have any of that. Right. No, no, they're not here to work. They're just observing. Well, they they kept hiding them from everyone. So there were civil and criminal charges that were brought against various members of the crew. John Landis, George Folsey Jr., the the pilot, Dorsey mm-hmm. Wingo, production assistant Dan Allingham, and explosive specialists Paul Stewart were all tried on manslaughter charges, but they were acquitted. Yeah. And then there were quite a few civil suits Vic Morrow's family ended up settling their civil suit, so we don't know what right. um, they were they received. I don't like to use the term "awarded" for civil for suits like this. Yeah, because it's it's it's, it's it's something you're settling for, in my opinion. You know, it's it's not a prize, it's, right? It's a it's a con- monetary condolence. Is yeah, what it boils down to precisely. So I, I I don't like to use the term. Oh well, they were awarded this amount of money. It's like well, it's not a prize. Yeah, like you just said, I'm like it's not a prize. <laughs> you're dead i like, win their family member died that's horrible they would much rather have their family member back than any amount of money uh, well they would but renee and micah's families collected millions of dollars from various civil suits right because this these suits the both the criminal charges and the civil charges these trials went on for like a decade mm. some other aftermath of this Steven Spielberg had previously been actually pretty good friends with John Landis. They were actually co-producing this movie together. And after this accident happens and just the way it was handled and everything, 
There were actually some people that testified that one of the production assistants was telling Wingo, okay, you're good, you know, pull up, get out of there. And allegedly John Landis was saying, no, keep going, get lower, get lower. And not taking the safety of his crew and his cast into consideration. Again, that's that's all, you know. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> but as a result of this accident, Steven Spielberg actually completely cut ties with John Landis. And very publicly called for an end to what was known as the new Hollywood era. Right, where directors had pretty much full control of everything. Yeah, directors had full control, essentially, and could do whatever they wanted. Which is kind of sad, because now we've got studio meddling. So it's like, has has the shift gone too far? But that's neither here nor there. Well, and we can discuss that in a minute. Actually, fuck it, let's discuss it now. I think there needs to be a fine line between directors having complete control and studios having so much control that they can completely change the narrative Mm. of a film. Because when it comes down to it, film is a form of art. Yeah. And you need to give an artist a certain amount of leeway. Now, when it comes to the safety of the people involved in making that art, the safety of those people needs to be paramount. Yeah, or any other studio, but I know what you mean. Yeah. I'm going to punch you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to add a joke in here because this is I know. so dark. And I heavy. know. I know. But you know what? Sometimes we have to talk about dark shit. Sure. I'm sorry. Sure. I know. The, the world, granted, this is most of the time we make we make jokes and goof ups and that kind of thing. Sometimes we have to talk about serious shit because the film industry occasionally gets very serious. I know. So while I feel like directors and writers and, and the actors and everything, they have to have a certain amount of creative license when it comes to keeping your people safe that needs to be the first thought in your mind when you say can we do this can we do this so in a statement to the press steven spielberg said and i agree with this no movie is worth dying for Mm -hmm. i think people are standing up much more to producers and directors who ask too much if something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor and crew member to yell cut. So just because you're not the director doesn't mean you shouldn't say this is wrong. Stop it. Right. And George Miller, who directed the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet segment, he was actually so disgusted over the whole situation that he completely abandoned the film in post-production. Yeah. He he walked away. He didn't want to be involved anymore to the point where Joe Dante actually ended up editing his segment. And... While this, I can't even call it an accident, I feel, while this incident Mm -hmm. did lead to increased safety measures and regulations, we know full well that accidents still happen on film sets that result in loss of life. I mean, just last year, we had, um, what is that film called? Rust? Yeah. I know one of the Resident Evil films, there was a, some stuff was where it wasn't supposed to be, and a stunt person got hurt and I think ended up losing their arm. Uh, there was a aerial zipline stunt in triple X that cost the life of uh, a stunt performer as well. Yeah. And there's the, uh, the now infamous incident with Brandon Lee on the set of the crow. Oh God. Okay. Now I don't want to cry. No, uh, I know, but like, yeah, clearly there's still more that needs to be done. Yeah. Because there are certain jobs where, um, you take a an accept there's an acceptable amount of risk for certain right. jobs. So if you're a, an EMT or a firefighter 
or something where you know there's a possibility you could go to work and lose your life or get hurt. I mean, really, anything has a certain acceptable amount of risk. But there are some professions, right? That you there you know you know that that's a possibility when you leave your house in the morning. Being an actor is not one of those jobs. Being a production assistant or no actor or crew member should go to a shoot wondering, will I die today mm. because of a stray round and a prop gun or a mistimed special effect. Or someone just not bothering to measure the right. amount of something in a, in a, you know, in a pyrotechnic and just saying, oh, that should be good. Yeah. You know, no. exact science, folks. Yeah, exactly. Because as much as I love, you know... I love films in general. I love horror films and I love action films. I don't want the people that are involved in making those films for me to put their lives at risk to make those films for me. And you look at some of the shit that's happened, like fucking look at the, the exorcist where Ellen Burstyn damn near broke her back. Yeah. Because she got thrown across a set. And you look at some of the stuff that Hitchcock did to Tippi Hedren and back in the day and just the mental health damage that Stanley Kubrick pulled uh, on Shelley Duvall. And it just it makes it hard for you to then consume the art for at least for me. Mm. Those films are all still great films, but directors aren't gods and you don't get to treat your actors and your crew like shit to make your film. If you can't make your film without being a piece of shit to the people that are involved in helping you make that film, maybe you shouldn't be making films. Yeah. That's just my, that's my two cents on that. I am not, I'm not a professional actress or a writer or director or anything, but I am fairly confident that if I asked my uncle, who is a professional actor, his opinion on it, he would probably agree with me. Yeah. I respect really, and in looking at this, I look at something I read from Jackie Chan. Yeah. Because not only does he does he act and do movies and all this stuff, but he also does stunts and stunt coordination. Mm-hmm. And his big rule has always been, I will never ask anyone to do a stunt that I won't do or demonstrate, or I won't ask anyone to do it. If I don't know it's safe, I won't ask them to if do I'm it. If I'm not willing to do it, I'm not going to ask you to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, has he gotten hurt on set? Oh, you betcha. He's almost died, like, two or three times. Uh, Operation Condor, Armor of God 2. He had a thimble-sized hole poked in the back of his head because he jumped to a tree branch. Now, if you've seen any Jackie Chan stuff, jumping to a tree branch is, like, the least exciting stunt he's ever done. Didn't it break? It snapped, and yeah, and they were in a very remote location, and they had to wait, like, two or three or four hours for a helicopter to get him to take him to another country to have surgery. Yeah. (laughs) So sometimes it's not the big scary train. It's the puddle of water in the grocery store that's going to get you. Right, exactly. We can't plan these things, but we can mitigate those risks. Well, then Sorry. you've got people like Tom Cruise where they're, they're, he's getting up there in age and people are trying to talk him out of doing his own stunts. Like, dude, you're getting older. Please stop. I just wonder what it's like with him, like just hanging out. It's like, well, you know, if we had a pilot available, he's like, well, I happen to be a pilot. Right. Okay. Well, if we happen to have a sushi chef around, we could, I actually happen to be a sushi chef. Well, I want fugu. I'm trained in that. It's like, Tom, what are you not trained in? Yeah. I just want to do something that you are not skilled at. Right. How are you at origami? Well, we'll find something. Right. So if you want to know more about this particular incident, 
Shudder has a series called Cursed Films. They did an episode about this. Goes into more depth than than I did. Yeah. I would honestly, to go into the full depth of this, I would need an entire episode, honestly. Yeah. And the nice thing about Shudder's series is, yes, it's called Cursed Films, but they don't necessarily just look at it as, oh, spooky, cursed. No, they look at it as, is it cursed? No. Were bad decisions bad, made? Yeah. Were yeah. bad choices made? Yes. <laughs> It's a good series. They also did... I think they also covered The Crow and The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Uh, the Omen? The Omen, yeah. Yeah. Because there's some weird shit that happened associated with The Omen also. But yeah, there is an episode about this incident. And it, like I said, it goes into more more detail that I, we just don't have time for. Right. So yeah, if you're interested, check it out. Highly recommend it. There's also articles online. Mm-hmm. The incident actually has its own separate Wikipedia page. Jeez Louise. Yeah. So anyway, now you know why we saved this discussion for the end of the episode. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's it's extremely sad, which of course it is. It involves the tragic passing of an actor and two children. Three actors. Two of them happen to be children. Yeah. I mean, they're child actors. You know, let's give them a title. Right. You might be six, but you earned a title. Yeah, that's fair. So anyway, let's wrap this up before Yay. I start crying again. Okay. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on... Wait, hold on. <laughs> Fuck. You can find us online at our website, h2horrorcast.com. There's links to our Facebook page, Twitter. You can email us directly. Uh, there's also a link to our Patreon. Mm-hmm which is patreon.com slash h2horrorcast. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month, which goes towards uh, when we need new equipment, if we have to rent a movie because it's not streaming anywhere. Or buy it because we can't find it anywhere else. Or, or buy it because it's cheaper to buy it and just have it than to rent it. Um, <laughs> Ain't that the truth sometimes. Yeah, exactly. If you're a new listener, welcome. I know yeah. we've got several new countries recently yes. in our demographics. So, welcome for if, that. <laughs> we don't always go this sad. I promise. No, we super don't. Uh, <laughs> next week will be not sad at all. Oh? Well, so next week we're going to talk about Grindhouse Cinema. Ooh, yeah. Which we were supposed to do this week, but when I started getting into the research on it, I was like, there's actually a lot more interesting shit here. And I want to, I wanted to devote more time to it. Cool. So... That's that's how that's happening. Bonus. Yeah. So, yeah. Shout out to our Twitter. Not, not Twitter. <laughs> Fucking hell. You'd think I've never done this before. <laughs> it's been two years. <laughs> what the shit? <laughs> what is wrong with me? Sad brain needs potatoes. Sad. I need. Uh, uh. What the fuck? <laughs> Seriously. I'm so sorry. I mean, if you follow us on Twitter, thanks. Shout out to you too, I guess. I can't name all of you. Are you okay? Yeah. All right. Uh, shout out to our patrons. Oh, that's what, that's the that's, thing I meant to say. That's the word. Uh, Liz, Lizzie, Gray, and my mom. Yes, you're all fantastic. You're all the best. We we love you all for different reasons and to different degrees. You're all great. Yeah. You're all number one in my book. It's a whole page. That's fair. Obviously, well, for me, obviously, my mom ranks higher a little bit (laughs) because she's my mom. Well, yes, I I understand that. I'm just saying 
they're a number one top-notch people okay fair until next time i'm tia all right and i'm still david and stay spooky friends it'll be okay we'll have potatoes okay bye. bye music for this episode is save us now by shane ivers our artwork is by Catherine nixon <laughs>